Last Sunday, uh, my family and I uh, traveled to Columbus uh, for my granddaughter Lily's um, confirmation. Uh, we had a wonderful time. They actually allowed me not only to participate, but um, also to do the message. And um, the service started at 11 o'clock, and about 12.10, uh, uh, I was up to preach. So um, I did my sermon in 10 minutes. Nobody left, and uh, it was a great day. But I'm going to preach a little bit longer than that this morning, just FYI. Well, Rod Dreyer has written a book called The Benedict Option. And his thesis is that uh, Christians have been um, defeated or removed by secular society and that our response ought to be to withdraw from mainstream culture, uh, pull our children out of public schools and universities, and, and ignore politics altogether. He calls it the Benedict Option after the Catholic Benedictine Order, uh, who withdrew into the monasteries in the 6th century to escape the decline and the corruption of Western civilization. And his idea has actually gained quite a few followers. Now think of what a change that is from the 70s and 80s, uh, where the moral majority was trying to reassert uh, Christian values into American culture. Are Christians losing a fighting battle? Are we powerless? Uh, is the quest for social change uh, hopeless before we even begin? Or is there a way that Christians can continue to influence our culture for good? On the other hand, you have some churches that go to extremes to try to be relevant uh, in order to get people in the door. Uh, they might remove uh, religious symbols, uh, including the cross, uh, from their buildings. Uh, they might, in fact, build buildings that look more like shopping malls than churches. Uh, their services might have secular rock music, and the speaker brings a, an inspirational message, uh, not really a sermon. Now, of course, no church wants to be irrelevant. A big part of what I do is to try to understand our culture, what are emerging trends, what are some things that our community is, is dealing with, and, and how can this church uh, help to connect and, and to be a positive influence in our community. But sometimes I wonder, what's the right course of action? Uh, do we give up and, and pull out from our culture and, and form our own little isolated communities? Uh, do we try to hide who we are and, and soften our values and our beliefs that are at odds with our general culture and then just try to, to blend in so that we don't offend our culture? Well, Jesus has something to say about it in Matthew chapter 5. And this is what he says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, we're in week two of this uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this series of teachings, Jesus is describing 
the life of a Christ follower, how we are to live life, what it means for people of, of faith to live out their lives. And, and we've already noticed that he sets a very high ethical standard uh, for us to live up to. Uh, last week we covered the Beatitudes, uh, how to live the blessed life. Uh, today he uses two metaphors to describe how we are to live, and those metaphors are salt and light. And the first one is salt. Now, we don't think much about salt today, do we? Because it is cheap and plentiful. But in ancient times, salt was highly valued. Um, it was used as a method, uh, frequently, of trade and currency. In fact, the word salary comes from the Latin word uh, for salt. Did you know that? And the saying, uh, not worth his salt or her salt, anybody ever said that to you? <laughs> came from the practice of, of trading slaves for salt in ancient Greece. In fact, cities were oftentimes built around salt deposits and wars were fought for it. Now, salt has many purposes, including seasoning, but in, in, in days before refrigeration, it was most valued for its ability to preserve, to keep food from, from spoiling. And Jesus says, uh, if a salt loses its saltiness, well, it's lost its purpose. It has no value. It's good for nothing, he says, but to be thrown out. Uh, the second metaphor that he uses is light. And, of course, we all know that light is to illuminate, to help us to see. Uh, today, there is so much ambient light that we rarely ever experience total darkness. But when we do, it's kind of a shock. Well, Jesus calls you and I to be light in a spiritually dark world. He says that some people will love the light and be drawn to it, and some people will hate the light. But he says it would be stupid to place light, a lantern under a basket. That defeats its purpose. In other words, Jesus is saying for the same, in the same way the church, we can't hide from the world, that we need to show a better way, that we need to shine in the darkness. So clearly the purpose of the church is not to withdraw from the world. We are to let our light shine so that people will see our good deeds and give praise to God. In other words, the way we live our life will, will point them to God by being salt and by being light. We can make a difference. We can make our lives count. We can have a kingdom influence upon our cities. Now, not everybody will appreciate that. Right before Jesus said this, he also said, Blessed are you when people insult you, when people persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In 1963, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter uh, from a jail in Birmingham, Alabama, to a group of clergymen who were openly opposing uh, his methods. And he felt that Dr. King was being too disruptive. And so here's what he wrote, and it's a long quote, but I think it's worth hearing. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. 
In fact, whenever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they, had a, that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. Dr. King goes on to say that things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. For if the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it loses its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. What do you think about Dr. King's words? Is he right that too often the church is more of a thermometer than a thermostat? And will there be a price to pay if we do? Sure there will be. We're not always going to be appreciated for being an influence. and There's no cheap and an easy way to make an eternal difference in our world. This morning, uh, there are 21,000 people running the Flying Pig Marathon. Did you know that the course record is, is held by a man named Cecil Frank who, who ran the marathon in about two hours and, and, and 20 minutes? That's about, um, that's about five minutes and 30 seconds per mile. Now, I can't even do that for one mile, let alone for 26 consecutive miles. But you know, to, to cross the finish line, the, these people, they started training in February. That means getting up at 4 o'clock in the, in the morning and, and running 8 to 12 miles a, a day in the snow and ice. It means keeping to, keeping to a strict discipline and diet. And, and it means sore muscles and injuries and, and losing toenails. Very few people are willing to pay the price for that. But Dr. King was willing to go to jail. You see, the price of being a faithful kingdom influence is that we may be slandered, we may be hated, we may be falsely accused. Jesus isn't saying that we should seek to be slandered, but we shouldn't be surprised by it either. I read just recently an article about the actress Nicole Kidman in Vanity Fair, and she shared that she gets a lot of teasing from her friends because she still believes in God. And because she takes her children to church. Now we're blessed that we don't face physical persecution. Though in some countries they do. But we do get some psychological. We may get some reputational. We may even get some vocational pressure. If we take a stand against culture. And as our culture applies more and more pressure to believe things that, that contradict Jesus' teachings. We may need to be willing to allow ourselves to be considered old-fashioned or out of touch, or on the wrong side of history. You see, if you want to be an influence, you, you may have to pay the price. Jesus does call us to be 
thermostats, not thermometers. It doesn't cost us anything to reflect the, the temperature of our culture, to get along, to, to go along, to get along. But we are to influence the temperature of our culture if we are willing to live the counterculture kind of life. It will cost us. So how do we do this? How can we be salt and light? Let me mention three things this morning. The first is, is, is prayer, the power of prayer. Now, I know that sounds like a pious platitude, but it isn't. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. And so our, our first duty towards our society and its leaders are to pray for them. Uh, there is a Franciscan convent in La Crosse, Wisconsin, that prays for its city uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At least two people are in their chapel every single hour of the year. And they have been doing that since August the 1st, 1878. That's 140 years of praying for their community. Uh, a few years ago, I, I really felt led to start praying for our world as well. I, I, uh, for breakfast, I read the Wall Street Journal, and, and then I get my, my prayer list and my Bible. I go into my living room, and, and I begin to pray for, for those nations I've just read about. And I, I write down the nations that are experiencing troubles, and I pray for their leaders, and I pray for their people. And, and, and some of those nations have been on that list for a long, long time and probably will never get off of that list. But sometimes it's fun to be able to check off a, a list as, as issues get resolved and, and nations are able to move forward. I think we all need to be praying for our political and our religious leaders. We need to pray for our city. We need to pray for spiritual renewal for our churches. If you want to have a better and more peaceful world, prayer is the key. The second thing that we can do to be salt and light is to use the power of God's truth. When Paul wrote what we know as 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the church there was in a mess. I mean, they were struggling to live by biblical standards. There was all kinds of divisions and, and fightings and all kinds of immorality. And he tells them, he says, hey, you are living by, by the standards of the world. You should be living Christian lives, but there's no difference between you and, and your, 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 your pagan neighbors. And then he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm reading from the message, and this is what he says. The world is unprincipled. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles that way, never have, never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. You see, the apostle dealt with the corrupt philosophies of the world by using God's truth. Dissident Russian Nobel Peace Prize winner Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in his acceptance speech, 
We don't have rockets to blast off. We haven't got any military might. So what can literature do in the face of merciless onslaught of open violence? One word of truth, he wrote, outweighs the world. You see, he believed that one word of truth is more powerful than bombs or tanks or weapons. And that as Christians, we need to stand for God's truth and for God's moral goodness. We need to to use our minds to argue the case of why we believe what we believe. Not by beating people over the head with the Bible. Not by imposing our views upon others. But by, by willing to share what we believe when we're asked. And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, we must use the power of example. Again, Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God who is in heaven. Now, truth is powerful when it's argued. But I think that truth is even more powerful when it's lived out, when it's modeled in our lives. When people see how you live your life, do they get a glimpse of God? Do they see how God originally designed this world to work? Might, they, might they, they even say, tell me why you are the way that you are. And maybe that will give you an open door to say, I live this way because I follow Christ. I'm so proud of this church. So proud of all the things that we're doing. All proud of the, the, the serve days that we're doing. So excited that, that Rob and Sarah are heading off for Zambia. Uh, just so many ways that we try to serve. Project 5000. You know, we've been doing that for some 37 years. But a few years ago, we, we made this collaborative effort with Kroger's. And, I, you know, it's pretty cool to walk over there and, and to see the display they put together. I remember the first year that, that we did that, and I was in my neighborhood, and one of my neighbors shouted across the street. He said, hey, pastor, it's so cool to see how you and, and Kroger's are working together to feed the hungry in our community. That really made me proud. But, you know... We don't feed the hungry because it makes us look good. Uh, We do it because the Bible tells us to do it. Because when we do it, we glorify God. We do it to honor God. Think of the ways that we can be salt and light by how we live our lives. We can do it by how we treat other people, our friends and, and our family. Ways that we can honor each other and be devoted and faithful to each other. What a, what a great witness. Some of the families in our church who, who have adopted a children into their family to welcome the stranger, to welcome the lonely and, and the lost. What a magnificent thing that is. You know, one Christian doctor or nurse in the hospital. A Christian lawyer in a a practice, a a Christian teacher in the schools, a a Christian business person can have enormous influence if we'll let God use us. Those of you who are coaching kids in, in sports, you have a great opportunity to let your light shine. One of my granddaughters in Columbus has a, a soccer coach who, who makes her cry uh, every single game. Oh, he's a very talented soccer player himself. He was a a national champion player, but he's clueless on how to coach champions. Contrast that with a story I heard just a couple weeks ago about one of our members who also coaches kids. And and during a recent game, his former former, uh, uh, players 
were coming up to them. Those who are now in college, they were coming up continuously during the game and, and, and giving him hugs and, and talking to him. Somehow, during his coaching, he made an impression upon those kids that, that went far beyond the sport, the game. Which of these two coaches do you think is making a difference in the world? See, Jesus made a difference with 12 dedicated people. So that within a few years, the Roman officials were complaining that they were turning the world upside down. Looking out here, I, I can see that we have more than 12. Do we want to have a kingdom influence on our city? Do we want to be salt and lie? Yeah, it's scary. There are times I just want to blend in with our culture. I just want to go along and not make any waves. But God wants to use us. God wants to use us to be an influence where you are and that we can make a difference. How can, how can we be salt and light this week? How can we change our world? Let's pray. God, we do want to be an influence. We know sometimes we want to hide our light under a basket, but, but God, we know that we're here for a purpose, for a reason. And God, so often we think that it's for something big, something huge, but God, we know that really it's in the little things, the everyday living, how we respond to others, how we interact, how we love those, the stranger how we love those in our families. That's where we can be salt and light. So help us, God. Open our hearts, open our minds this week, open our eyes so that we can see those people that you bring and help us, God. Help us to be a kingdom influence for you. Amen.